This is Anthony in Areno, and you're listening to In the Arena. one of your heroes. This is a person who should need no introduction, and they probably won't. I'm on their Amazon page, and I'm just going to rattle off the name of a number of books. The first is In Search of Excellence, 1982, with Bob Waterman. From there, we can look at A Passion for Excellence. We can look at The Pursuit of Wow. We can look at a book called The Brand You 50, Thriving on Chaos, A couple of my favorites, The Circle of Innovation, that's where I really came into his work, Reimagine, and The Little Big Things, and I interviewed this person for that book when it came out about eight years ago. I got to meet Tom Peters at the 800 CEO Read Book Awards, and he was being honored with a Lifetime Achievement Award. My book, The Lost Art of Closing, was being considered for one of the top books in sales and marketing in 2017. Tom was everything that I imagined he would be. He was courteous, he was gracious, he was funny, he was engaging, and he spent time talking to every single person in the room. Uh, Being the legend that he was, there's a line of people always waiting to speak to Tom. I invited Tom here in the arena so that we could talk about his new book, The Excellence Dividend. And I believe this is one of his most important books. I also believe it is probably very much in line with the professional service firm 50 and the brand 50, and that it is a checklist of things for you to do. So without any further setup, this is Tom Peters in the arena. Well, how are you? Good. Einstein was with his chauffeur going to some event, and the chauffeur turned around to him and said, Dr. Einstein, I've heard this so many times, I could give the speech. Einstein said, fine, be my guest. (laughs) So the guy gives the speech, and it is indeed perfect. And then they open it up for questions. And somebody asks a complex question in physics, the chauffeur who was playing Einstein looks at him and said, that is such a stupid question, my chauffeur could answer it. (laughs) <laughs> I, I don't remember jokes and that's a stupid joke so my apologies yes but it's clean which means it's a joke you can actually tell yeah boy i'll tell you that's not funny but when i started a thousand years ago when you were still a baby boy it was almost de rigueur to start a speech with a dirty joke i can't believe it and what i mainly can't believe is i did it i'm oh. sure I don't, I don't, I don't think I did, but when you say something like that, your hypothesis is actually wishful thinking, dude. I would be horrified to open a speech that way. And I get like you, I speak to companies and there's HR people in the room. There's lots of people there. I would never start with something off color. In today's world, you would never be invited again anywhere in the world. No. Except by some evangelical preacher or except by, by somebody yeah who uh i wouldn't want to speak for <laughs> yeah exactly oh no no you, you absolutely couldn't do that uh, the part i will admit to is my language was a lot more sailor like and that's gone 
or it's 98 percent gone which i also think is we'll great. see if i can pull it out of you during this uh, interview <laughs> <laughs> just for fun i think no i think i think the far more fun was for shelly to do it because the reality is she does know this stuff as well as i do and uh there it is. And she's actually has a liberal education. She's a Mount Holyoke grad and I'm an engineering grad. So she actually speaks King's English. Well, with her in the room, I won't tell you a dirty joke, but I will just tell you, I never told one on stage, but there was an executive vice president of sales going through the numbers for about the eighth time with the sales force after everybody shared the numbers, because that's what motivates people is looking back over the numbers. And I was sitting with the CEO and I leaned over and I told him just a terrific joke. We were sitting right in the front of the stage and he busted out laughing so hard. It shut the whole place down. And the EVP looks at me like, what did you do? And when we're not a mixed company, I'll tell you that joke. But it's funny. It's not dirty like that. It's just got a bad word in it. But You have an amazing bio and have survived an incredible number of things. But the part that I loved was front man for a rock band at the age of 17. I don't give a damn about the rest of it. Sorry about your health problems. Sorry. Happy about your <laughs> other stuff. That makes you a cool dude. And, and, and went to L.A. Listen, it, it was when I was 15, I saw Def Leppard. They weren't much older than I was. And then I, uh, I this is a keynote story that I tell. I was with my girlfriend at White Snake and Quiet Riot. It was November 21st, 1984. I'm a senior in high school. And she's a beautiful girl. And I notice her just looking at the front man. And I'm thinking to myself, she's thinking about sleeping with that guy. And I knew it in my heart. And then I looked around at all of the women and I was like, that has to be the greatest job on earth. And I went home the next day, literally called my brother and said, we're starting a rock band today, if not sooner. I mean, we have to. It's the most urgent thing that I could think of. And we started, of course, playing candles, you know, where you show up at the bar and there's nobody there but candles because you're the opening act. But we were 17 playing in bars for a case of beer a night to show up and play. Were you any good? No, I was terrible. I mean, every everybody starts out terrible. You, We got to be good. I got to be really good. I took voice lessons, opera lessons, and I ended up actually having a, a three-octave range and could literally sing anything and sing four or five sets a night. But when you start out, you're just terrible. Why are you screwing around with this stuff then? Uh, rock and roll died. Ah, there it is. Yeah, rock and roll died. It was supposed to be fun, and then it turned into grunge. And what's interesting about the grunge movement, every guy that fronted one of those bands now has killed themselves. It was dark, depressed. It just That, that wasn't what rock and roll was. You know better than I do. Rock and roll, everything comes out of the Beatles. That was it was about fun, and it's not anymore. What do you call the Presley Day stuff? Well, that was the birth of rock and roll. Yeah, that's what I thought. When you said it came out of the Beatles, I thought it would have gone well, back. Yeah, oh yeah. They they were what the hell was Presley's years? They must have been fifties. Yeah, I was, I was trying to remember when he did his draft thing. And not, why was he being drafted? That wasn't career. No. I guess it was just a draft, and that's, that's that. It's just a draft. Thankfully, that's gone. We have all this recorded, although this is not the interview at all. <laughs> well, thank you for being here. The last time I interviewed you was eight years ago for The Little Big Things. It's been that long between books for you, which has not been great for the rest of us waiting for your books. You may not remember how I opened that interview, but I will remind you that the first thing I said to you is that this interview uh, was the same for me as if you got to interview Nelson or Grant or Adams. 
and it means that much to me. And when I got to meet you at 800 CEO Reads, it is a pleasure to meet one of your heroes. But then to find out that they're of the character that you thought they were and that they're gracious and humble and uh, you were just so good to everyone, it was uh, amazing. So thank you for that. Doubtless had two-thirds undeserved. (laughs) Well, I posted the picture online and immediately got tons of jealous notes. Like, how did you do that? Where was he? How did you get to meet him? So that was fun. That's a a pleasant evening. It was. They did such a good job. Actually, the part that I loved, which was one of the more amusing parts, given that they are publishers, was that bit where they were giving some of the earlier awards and everybody's just drinking. It would not shut up at all. The sound level did not go down in the least, which is really sort of sad for the people who were, you know, being acknowledged. Yeah. But at least they put an event like that on. I mean, that was, it's it's really wonderful that they do that. Yeah. We're here to talk about your new book, um, The Excellence Dividend. And uh, we're going to get into that. But what I want to do is talk about the big systemic issues. And some I'll say that are new and some probably aren't so new. And I'd like to get your take on them as, as we go along. I spent my entire adult life in staffing. And I've always had this concern about unemployment as manufacturing started to get outsourced. And you're looking at a group of people that doesn't have an education in some cases and doesn't have a skill set. And I've always had this concern about what happens. And now that's starting to happen with white collar jobs at an increasing pace as well. And even though I think right now there's a couple things, everyone's being told to go to college and take on massive debt, even though there's other trade like work that's still doing very well. And even though unemployment is low, I mean, it's historically very, very low, the future looks different and it feels different. So can you share your take on the tech tsunami and robots and automation and AI and machine learning and how one might think about positioning themselves against these new technologies because they're here? A, I'm not an economist. B, I don't like to go beyond my arena of expertise. So I will give you some quarter-baked observations to which you can respond when you think I'm full of baloney. One of the things that I didn't say well enough in the book is relative to this tech tsunami, there is a classic Oxford Deloitte study that everybody's talking about that said 50% of American white-collar jobs are at risk within the next 10 to 15 years. Then recently, I think it was a World Bank study came out that went through the methodology of that study and said, that's baloney, it's 15 to 25 years, and it's 15%. There's an important practical point to that digression or diversion, or whatever you want to call it, and that is people don't know what the hell the speed of this is. Brilliant people are all over the map. That's number one. Number two, certainly, where I don't have expertise, you probably have more than I, is we do have millions of jobs in the trades, if you will, that are going unfilled. I would love, and I have felt this forever and ever and ever and ever and ever, I would love Vogue schools to not be seen as place where the dumbs go and see, I mean, I just... I've always been around people in the trades, and my admiration for them is well above 98% of white-collar workers. And in fact, I'll get back to that in a few minutes. I wrote something in the book that I called My Million Jobs Dream, which I don't think is entirely stupid. 
I don't know what I think relative to the next 10 years about this big issue of should everybody be going to college. I think from what I read that no, they shouldn't. And I know the examples of people without jobs and so on, but statistically, the correlation of a college degree with higher lifetime income expectations is incredibly high. Be equally careful of saying, look, this college thing is, you know, this is, this is baloney, we've oversold it, and undoubtedly we have to some extent, but I would be very hard pressed to suggest to you as the parent of an 18 year old that you, you know, think of X and not worry about whether you could would go to college. I'd want my 18-year-old to go to college. Uh, my All three of mine are. There's no doubt that I want them to get a liberal arts degree, and we'll talk about that because I think it's important. But I've taught at college, and I've had kids say to me, when I get out of here, I want to make a lot of money. And I ask them, what is a lot of money? And they're like, you know, $150,000, $200,000 a year. And to them, that sounds like a lot of money. And I said, then why don't you become a plumber? And like, a plumber can't make that. And I said, the hell the plumber can't. I mean, you get three trucks and a few people working for you, you can do a million dollars. You're forcing me to go back to that thing I was talking about that I wrote in the book. I was going, driving somewhere south of Boston near New Bedford to pay an engineering bill. And I went past a nondescript sign for a little place where you turned in and there were 12 businesses. You know, one was tax preparation, one was some kind of a spa, one of them was lawyers who deal with health problems. But it really, it kind of hit me between the eyes because I believe that each one of those tiny businesses could become, to use my overused word, exceptional slash excellent slash what have you. And I was thinking, not that I want to do it, what if you could, and maybe it would be a government program, what if you could help? 500,000 businesses add two employees each. And, you know, that ain't small change. And part of it would be, you know, helping people develop once they got on board. And when people come by, you know, the, the thing I loved recently, and I don't think this is a digression at all, is uh, we have a sub-zero refrigerator and our compressor went. There was a guy who has a little three-person appliance repair company who came out, and as I always do, I was talking with him. And he, on his own nickel, had just come back from a, it was either two-week or three-week course, which was software and the Internet of Things. He's not going to be, you know, he's not going to be a coder or anything like that. But, but I just love that kind of a notion of responding to all the sexy things that you said and that I say and so on and you know digging in your own pocket or better yet for my thing being part of a 12 person appliance repair group where everybody they were more focused on training than your average normal corporation but I've always loved Vogue Tech schools I've always been desperately in love with community colleges and thought that they were you know just fantastic not least of which the you know it's the old punchline which is at least significantly true in my mind and that is the people who teach there are there to teach uh, they are not distracted nice distraction at the harvards and stanford's by you know the need to have 23 papers per year come out i go with what thomas Sowell said about uh, harvard business school where i went and that is uh, once you have a harvard mba you're never again intimidated by anyone with a harvard mba 
and you're not impressed either. I, boy, I'll tell you, I don't know about the Harvard MBA, but I worked at McKinsey for seven years. I was intimidated by 90% of those guys, and now I'm 75, and I'm still intimidated by them. Uh, no and, reason to be. Yeah, part of it is intellectual arrogance, which is awful, uh, except, you know, and I've got nice degrees. I got engineering degrees from Cornell and Stanford business degree and so on. But McKinsey people scare the crap out of me, you know, even, even though I was one. They are best but, and bright. Yeah, but the reason that we're having this conversation is uh, at the end of the day, were I to be honest, is because a whole bunch of years ago I co-wrote In Search of Excellence. And the reason I co-wrote In Search of Excellence was because the new managing director of McKinsey, a guy by the name of Ron Daniel, uh, I had just gotten a degree in organization effectiveness, my PhD at Stanford and so on. And Daniel said, uh, there's no question whatsoever that we design the most brilliant strategies for our clients, you know, imaginable, comma, but three quarters of them don't get implemented. And what the hell is the problem? What's wrong with McKinsey and what's wrong with the client that these things don't get executed? And so at some level, the whole reason I'm here is because the intellectual brilliance was one thing, but stuff that works was a totally different story. Welsh's reputation is overblown. But, and I use this in the book, I, I loved Welsh's definition of strategy. His definition of strategy was pick a general direction and implement like hell. You know, that makes perfect sense to me. But, you know, I'm, I'm evading your question, one non-evasion. And I'm pleased with it. I don't think one out of a thousand readers will pay much attention to it, but I will. Is I believe, given what you have said, regardless of whether it's one extreme or the other, that business, this has always been true, but it's far more true today. Business, any business has a moral to their nation, to their community, a moral responsibility to develop the people who work for them. If you go to work for that appliance repair guy, or if you go to work for a big company, if you were there for six months or six years, not only should you have a decent job, but you should walk out of there better prepared for the next 10 years than when you came in. That one, you know, I would punch somebody in the face. I hope you don't do that. I could see you doing it, though. It wouldn't work very well. <laughs> yeah. I, I'm going to come back to that because uh, there's something that you said in the book that I really want to focus on. Let me drive us through to another question. So I, I, You give your answer to the question you asked. You respond to me. Don't don't try I, to seriously. You've obviously thought about this a lot. What do you think? I don't think it matters if it's fifteen percent or twenty five percent. I think it's a reorganization of society as it exists now, and we're not prepared for that conversation. And so you see people talking about living wage and and taxing the robots. So if you're going to have robots, they're going to tax it because you're going to put millions of people out of work. And I think that that's true. I'm not sure if it's fifty or 100, but whatever it is, we're heading in that general direction. And I think it means that we need to look at who we are and what we do for yeah. and with each other. Uh, because yeah. when society changed like it is even now, there's a responsibility to each other to figure this out. And I think it's scary for people. It should be. Yeah. I mean, the thing that's scary to me about what you just said, and I don't have much optimism, is for things like some version of a guaranteed basic income, 
you have to have a Congress that works together and actually passes decent legislation. And this is not because of the guy in the White House that I'm saying. It's because of the way Congress has behaved for the last several years. The kind of cooperation across the aisle that was normal 25 or 30 or 35 years ago seems to have evaporated. And that's scary. It's all politics and divisiveness now at a time where that's not helpful, unfortunately. There's not a word that you said that I disagree with, but, and I'm talking about the average businessman. I'm not talking about somebody who's being thoughtful about this stuff and professionally is being thoughtful about it. The average businessman has got to make it through the next five years and business five years from now will be very recognizable. Yes. And you know, when people get totally worked up, I'm completely on their side. And the thing, the bigger things that you were talking about, I completely agree with, but we also got to make it to 2020. Yeah. It's a wonderful conflict. Maybe you or I would see it that way because we kind of are more intellectual professions, but it is a conflict period. I want them all to be like that guy who fixed me. I, I was so turned on. Yeah, of course. He's a professional. Yeah, he's a real professional and he's got a view of what's coming down the pike and and is acting and behaving in a way which I would say for him and probably for his family or his community is good stuff. One way, I think, to work at that, which I didn't say in the book, what I say in my speeches, depending on who the customer is, even though I'd say it in places where I shouldn't, is I don't really give a damn about giant companies. Giant companies today are automating like hell, slashing costs and throwing people off the workforce. You know, God bless you. Do whatever you do. But fundamentally, I'm if I were 20 years younger, I would put 98 percent of my effort in on SMEs. And one of my big criticisms, I hate that guru term, but one of my big criticisms of the guru class is they act as if there was the Fortune 500 and the FTSE 100, and that was the world. Well, it isn't. I've seen statistics. I would never vouch for them, but I believe that less than 10% of us work domestically for Fortune 500 okay. companies. That's right. I can understand how to help a 50-person company become an 80-person company. I can get that. And I can get it in ways that are consistent with the new technology as well as just by, you know, showing up on time. Let me move us into uh, something that's right off of this. In the book you wrote, uh, excellence is the seemingly small acts that shout we care and which linger in the memories of those we interact with, our own people, our communities, our suppliers, our customers. From my view right now, what I'm seeing is that markets are basically, companies are getting pulled in two directions. One direction I'll call super transactional. This is Amazon. Automate everything. There's no human beings that are going to interact with you in any way, shape, or form. Take all the friction out. Price gets taken out. Dealing with people gets taken out. The going somewhere gets taken out, and that's one model. But at the same time, I see more people going the other direction who are trying to grow their business, which I would call super relational. And that is high trust, high value, high caring where it's human, it's deeply human, there's a connection there, they're trying to interact with people, not not interact with people. And it seems to me that the middle is the part that's getting pulled apart, because they're being told, chase Amazon, which, you know, there's only going to be one of those. Only one person can hold the lowest price and do what they're doing. And I think that they're getting bad advice. And the, the going the other direction from this, to me, seems like the right thing for most businesses. Like your refrigerator repairman, That's a relationship now, and you're impressed with him. Anytime you have an issue, you've got a guy, 
You're going to call him. You're going to tell other people to call him. You're now telling this story, you know, on a podcast of all places. I agree with every word you said. And I believe that people who are chasing the low price, low cost model, excuse my language, are idiots. So we are in whatever number is above 100 <laughs> percent on that. And, you know, I start the book uh, in the introduction section with that Metro Bank story, automating and throwing people out of work at the branch level. And these guys creating 17,000 jobs and giving away two million dog biscuits a year and making every branch opening a, a Barnum and Bailey circus. And, and there is a lot which I think you were implying. And there's lots of growth room there. It's not like they're going to get to the top of that thing and, and then have to turn around and, run and become like all the other guys. But I don't when, think. When everything is automated and the human part comes out of it, then that's going to be the attraction for people is yeah. the fact that I can talk to somebody. I tell the young uh, people when I speak to young audiences is that uh, so far sexting has not replaced actual sex. And I don't think it will. I don't know. I'm reading a book right now about the automation of intimacy. And it focuses a lot on virtual reality. I hope you're right, but I don't know. I don't know what's going to happen to today's seven-year-olds. I got a few million years of evolution on my side. Well, no, I know you do. Know you do. But uh, it just terrifies me. The book, though, is about, like many of the things that you've written, and we'll talk about a couple other ones, uh, is offense. It's not cowering in the face of any of this, though. It's, it's do these things, be excellent, make a difference, care about people. And even using the word caring, in the first book that I wrote, I have a chapter on caring in a sales book. And the first publisher that asked me for the book said, what the hell is that doing in a, a sales book of all things? And I said, you've never sold before, have you? And he said, no. I said, I know. <laughs> It's all about trying to help somebody get a result that they can't get without you. Well, a variation, not quite as exactly what you're saying, but I think it is. And I was actually talking to somebody about it today. Is years ago, I was doing some work with AT&T and talking to one of their top salespeople. And he said, all of us who are top salespeople have one thing in common. We never pay any attention to incentive systems. Our track record over the next five years will be 100% driven by the solidity of the relationships that we have with our customers who matter. And he said, you know, the finance people, the marketing people say, oh, for the next quarter, you can make a million dollars if you'll just sell, you know, boobity doobity do. He said, good salesmen don't care. No. I just have this thing. You might enjoy this. It's not in the book that I've gotten off on this. And what I've gotten off on is speed is a snare and a delusion. And here's what it says. I'm going to read it to you. Speed, not. Relationships take time. Recruiting allies to your cause takes time. Reading and studying takes time. Really listening takes time. Practice and preparation takes time. Managing by wandering around takes time. Slack in your schedule takes time. Thoughtfulness and small gestures take time. The last 10% takes time. And excellence takes time. And it's just, I really want to attack this speed is life. Uh, you know, there's the, you know, there's the, the wonderful contradiction that if you take the time, then actually you can make change happen more rapidly. But I say it this way, in human relationships, fast is slow and slow is fast. And the faster yeah. you try to go with an individual to make them buy something, the worse it is for you. And, and salespeople 
if they're smart, they never trade a deal that's wrong for the client today to make money for that future relationship. They just don't do it. It doesn't make any sense. It works against your long-term interests. I was in the Navy and like all people in the Navy, at least in the 1960s, that meant that your wage was significantly below the good humor man. <laughs> and there was a company that started out in San Antonio called USAA or the United Service Automobile Association uh, for servicemen. It's expanded a lot. But at any rate, this is a big insurance company. And uh, either because of age or what have you, every now and then I've got problems and I love it. I call them and somebody answers the phone and I can hear Texas in their voice. This is a giant institution in financial services. They have one call center on earth and that call center is in San Antonio, Texas. And I ended up talking to uh, some woman and we were talking about football or basketball and I said to her, I said, look, I said, I'm enjoying the conversation, but I'm happy to quit. I said, if there's somebody standing behind you with a gun at your temple requiring <laughs> you to make your quotas, please. Don't. She said, you don't understand USAA. She said, we are told to spend as much time as is humanly possible if we're enjoying it, we're working on developing the relationship. And it pays off for those. And it, and it can be done. And they're winning. And they're winning. Yeah. And they're winning. Absolutely. That's right. I believe that a leader's number one priority is to create and sustain a culture, a positive, optimistic, future-oriented culture where people can grow. Not just the business can grow, but people can grow. I've been reading you for a long time, so you may have been the one that actually infected me with that belief. I'm not sure. I would to think I had. I'm not, I can't promise that I did. <laughs> I find it difficult, though, now for people to maintain those kinds of cultures in this environment that we're in, where there's so much divisiveness and cynicism and skepticism, and where there's sort of this pride in your work not having meaning and being a slacker. And, and I don't know if this is sort of some sort of nihilist view of people that they don't want to pour themselves into their work. So I think leaders have a lot to combat when it comes to those external forces and helping people think about their individual role when it comes to building this culture that's yeah. positive. I don't think I'm quite as negative as you are, which is what interests me and what you said in the second half is I think any given leader can flip that within her or his space regard, you know, in our second book of passion for excellence that I wrote with Nancy Austin, there was one thing in it that was clever and it was something we called pockets of excellence. And we said there can be the cleanest company on earth, but your 20 person training department or your 200 person distribution center can be a model of planetary excellence. And there's no reason I was talking, I was talking one time, to the greatest group of human beings I ever spoke to, the NAESP, which is the National Association of Elementary School Principals. And I said, look, I don't know your world, but I do know that it's loaded with bureaucratic bullshit. But I said, if you are a principal of the school, at 8.30, the last door clangs shut, and that's your house until the end of the day. And I understand you have to have people who will fill out the forms for you, but I said, in terms of the energy and in terms of the spirit, and so on. It's your house. And I can't guarantee you that you won't get fired by the higher ups, but it can be done within any context and, and even within the most difficult context. But I think it's 
am not a religious person, but I use the word throughout the book, moral obligation, moral obligation, specifically because of what you're talking about. And I think that's what, what I, what this was not in the book, but this is how, I mean, the interesting thing about what you're saying is I've done a bunch of podcasts. I'm still giving speeches and I have gotten more and more furious about the things that you and I are talking about more and more impatient, maybe just because I'm old and I'm just angry about this stuff. I mean, the, my opening line now, there is no excuse for not making any organization of any size in any business a great place to work. Right. And that's my opening line, period. And I absolutely believe it. Two-person consultancy, well, I think 22,000-person company, but as I said to you, I don't give a damn about them. I do give a damn about that person running the 20-person training department or finance. I mean, the, the most wonderful thing about the response to In Search of Excellence was actually, and it's the same funny way, it was the same story in 1982. I didn't get many letters from CEOs, and if I did, I didn't keep them. The stuff that I still have in boxes, not quite so nostalgic as to go read it, is the ones I got from fire chiefs, police chiefs, elementary school principals, people running a 12-person business. And I would weep, you know, to know that you might have helped the fire chief. You know, yeah. really had some zest and spirit to his operation. To me was, you know, you, you increased your odds by a thousandth of a percent of going to heaven instead of hell. If that was the sentence, then the exclamation point for me comes in the book when you talk about a presentation you gave to a healthcare group. And you said that a manager could de facto save more lives than a surgeon. And I believe that's true, but I would I would like to hear you. Well, first, I'd like to know how that go over in a room full of healthcare people. But second, I would like you to just riff on that for people so they could get infected with this idea that you really, as a manager and a leader, can change lives for the better in the same way and probably across more people just because of the nature of the role of being a leader and having a team than even a surgeon. Absolutely. A, I believe that B, I did it because I knew it would piss people off in the <laughs> audience. But I was also focusing on the managerial class in the healthcare arena. The exact words I used that I happen to have lying in front of me, managing as the pinnacle of human achievement, the greatest life opportunity one can have, literally. Mid to long-term success is no more and no less than a function of one's dedication to and effectiveness at helping team members grow and flourish as individuals and as contributing members of an energetic, self-renewing organization dedicated to the relentless pursuit of excellence. And I do believe it, right? It's funny, but it's a variation on the theme. Somebody at Twitter went off on Elon Musk is the greatest thing that has happened to humanity. And my response, it was just off my head in the morning. I said, you know what? I said, I respect Elon Musk. I said, I respect him almost as much as that extraordinary second grade teacher who is influencing today 19 lives of her seven-year-olds in whatever town it is. And almost as much as I respect the MD who, despite the bureaucratic crap of his own organization, is spending 10 hours a week working in a free clinic. I said, Musk is great, almost as great as those two. And that was not a, you know, that wasn't a throwaway line. That was that was, you know, absolutely from the heart. But I, but I do, I mean, you, you think about it, even if you were only talking, I mean, I'm, and that comment about the pinnacle of human achievement had nothing to do with CEOs. It's first line, second line managers. 
And if you were a first or second line manager for 15 years, you could change thousands of lives and you could make a dramatic alteration of trajectories. And I believe every single word of that statement. I don't know that people know that that's where the bar is for them, that they're allowed to do that. I don't think that they know that they're supposed to do it or they're allowed to do it. I want to say something to you directly because I only have a few minutes left with you. I've got seven minutes left. I do want to tell you, your work actually made that change for me starting in about, well, starting with Circle of Innovation. But then when Brand New came out and I read that book, it was so empowering me to think nobody has any control over the quality of the work that I do. And I just decided every project to me is going to be a masterpiece in a work of art. And it turns out nobody tried to stop me. It was as much as I wanted to do. People were like, just let him do what he's doing. It's working, you know. And I don't know that people know if you just give yourself over, if you just pour yourself into the work, not only does it change lives and do make everything better for everyone around you, but it makes you better. You find joy in your work, which I don't know that people know that. I think it's well, I've got to go to the grind. It's a grind if you think it's that, but if you think it's a place where you can go in and make change, it's something completely different. First of all, thank you for the, the incredibly kind words. But yes, the only problem I have with the brand you was too many people interpreted it as be a full-time marketer for yourself. And that was the antithesis of what I was trying to say. But I give the people who misinterpreted credit because obviously I gave them an opening to make a misinterpretation. And, you know, the thing I say today is brand you is a horizontal business, not a vertical business. It's about developing a network of people who, when they're starting a cool project, the first thing they think of is, oh, my God, I'd love to get a hold of Anthony for four months to work on this project. Yeah. That misinterpretation is, is, a, is a little bit. Well, there was some book that, oh, my God, I wish you could remember the guy's name, a famous sort of or more than sort of philosopher who blamed the me generation in the 90s on me and Jerry Seinfeld. I mean, first, I was thrilled to be you know, at that level of impact, but it was also a matter of despair to realize that people had misread it, though I understand it because and the way they did it was to take the tide, the tide circular symbol and say that's what you're going to be like a, and and there's a lot good to say for tide and there's a lot that's a little less good i would argue that the person never read your work they didn't read it closely but i would argue that there are things that i could have said differently which would have been a little bit better insulation the last time we talked it was the little big things after that you and i had a twitter exchange about mandela and smiling i would tell you my wife says when she's not smiling, she has what she calls resting bitch face, which is she just doesn't look like she's happy. And I said, well, that means I have resting bastard face. And you and I had this Twitter exchange. I took what you said at some point. I don't remember where it was even where it came from. It was online about your first eight seconds walking into a room or something. And I just started doing it. Whenever I walked into a sales call, I would literally walk in just smiling, immediately smiling. And I noticed it changed the way that people responded to me. And then I realized, wait, I could charm the heck out of people walking in with this kind of attitude. And it turns out it works. And I, I started calling it the full Mandela. 
Because, you know, yeah. that's where that came from. That's, I love it. Just giving people the full Mandela when you walk in the room. Well, that's of course the part which Tony Robbins, I think, said, though I am very loath to give him credit for anything, is it makes you feel better. Yeah. And apparently it makes you feel better for some neurological reasons, not just because of the smile itself. You do various things yeah. to if you have any of those pieces left, given your earlier medical problems. <laughs> I know I have to warn people there's something missing upstairs. And I mean, physiologically, there's something missing upstairs. We yeah. can prove it. But I did have a surgeon tell me, but we know you have a brain because we've been in and we've seen it. So that's a fact. <laughs> yeah. He said we can't say that about everybody. Most unique individual in that regard. That's good. I like that. Well, in closing, I just want to first, I want to thank you for your work. I want to tell you that your work has shaped much of my thinking and much of my values when it comes to business. And this is your best book. And I love it for a couple reasons. One, it's totally practical and tactical. So I'm pitching the book right now. If you're a leader, this is a to-do list. The book is essentially a long to-do list that you won't be able to complete. And you're going to want to get as many people involved in that kind of a project with you as you chase down excellence. And I want to tell you that if your back hurts all the time, it's not because you're old. It's because uh, you've got giant shoulders and there's a whole bunch of us standing on them. So I want you to know that. You know, there's no way I could possibly respond to that. Obviously, my level of appreciation for a comment like that requires so many superlatives that it would make me look and sound like an idiot. Just say thank you. And that's yeah. It. Thank you. Well, with, a Mandela, with a Mandela smile. <laughs> all right. That's perfect then. I don't want to keep you anymore. This is uh, 150, and that was our commitment. So thank you so much for being here. I'm not throwing you out because I want to. I'm throwing you out because I've got to move on. Now, that was fabulous. That was really great. I'm feeling good. That was Tom Peters, and you can find him at TomPeters.com. When you go out to that site, you'll also be able to find the Dividend Excellence. We'll also include a link here where you can buy that book at a local independent bookstore. So we'll share that link with you here. I'm Anthony Anarino. You can find me at thesalesblog.com, where I publish daily. You can also find me at youtube.com forward slash Anarino, my last name. You might also want to check out b2bsalestraining.com and b2bsalestoolkit.com, where I have additional resources for you if you're interested in that kind of thing. If you liked this show, do me a favor and go out to iTunes and give it five stars and give it a review so that other people can find this. And until next time, I'll see you in the arena. Audio editing and show notes by podcastfasttrack.com. Get 15% off your first month by mentioning this show.